Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Welcome to our weekly marriage hour today on Trending. We're going to talk about dissatisfaction and distraction in marriage a little later. And on the topic of distraction, Nir Al is my guest today. He's the author of the book, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. I highly recommend this book. It's practical. It's rich in data. It helps you in overcoming the distractions we have in life and helping us understand why they happen so that, again, you can take control of your attention and choose your life. In fact, I just got these reminders of date night tonight. We're going to talk about that a little later today. But having that time block calendar, a lot of very practical, helpful tools that Nir has in his book. Today, we're going to talk about distraction solutions, but we have to talk about why we need the solution. Getting into the psychology of why we turn toward distractions to begin with. And I think the key takeaway for today is that distraction is or dissatisfaction is at the core of distraction. So joining me now to discuss is best-selling author Nir Isle. Nir, welcome back to Trending. So great to be with you. This is my third time here. I'm honored to be back. Your book is absolute gold. Um, I'm actually, I was thinking about it today <laughs> from you. You know, a Catholic theology perspective. I'm like, there's so much you can take into Catholic theology to talk about this, especially this chapter that I've been thinking a lot about r- regarding distraction and dissatisfaction. So l- kind of get to the clincher of why are we turning to the distractions? Our phones, email, TV, yeah. all of this. Absolutely. So what we tend to blame, these are the external triggers, the pings, the dings, the rings, anything in our outside environment that takes us off track. Now, studies find that that is only the source of 10% of our distractions, even though that's what we tend to blame, right? We tend to blame our phones, our computers, all the stuff outside of us. Turns out studies find 90% of our distractions begin from within. These are called internal triggers. And these internal triggers are uncomfortable emotional states. Boredom, loneliness, fatigue, stress, anxiety, uncertainty. These internal triggers are the source of 90% of the distraction that takes us away from what we plan to do with our time and attention. So therefore, that means that these technologies that we think are the distractions are just the proximal cause. They're not the root cause of the problem. The root cause of the problem are these uncomfortable emotional states. So whether it's too much news, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook, you will always get distracted unless you know how to deal with that discomfort in a healthy way that leads you towards traction rather than distraction. I know in your book, you talk a lot about kind of this idea of being discontent and the fact that if we're discontent, Mm -hmm. that's actually normal. And I think part of the 
hurdle is that you're saying that's something we have to get over in some respects, that we're not just going to have that emotion we might be chasing after, whether it's happiness, whether it's feeling wooed, whether it feels like you're on an adventure. And I think that's relevant even within the context of marriage. Like People will struggle in marriage and sometimes get distracted from their marriage and their spouse because they want those things. And either they're pressing that other person to really give it to them or they're looking for that emotional satisfaction in other places. But this really comes back to this whole topic of distraction. Absolutely. I think, you know, in our society, we have a real aversion to any kind of discomfort. It, maybe it's a mm-hmm. war on discomfort that we're kind of told that feeling bad is bad. Uh, and it's it's so pervasive that even as I say that, some people say, well, of course, you know, why would I want to feel bad? Well, you know, I, I have to say, if we even think about the, 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 the example of Christ, you know, the suffering of Christ, it, it shows us that that suffering has purpose. And so even in our own lives, when we think about the fact that when we suffer, if we try and escape that suffering, whether that's by clicking on uh, some app or watching the news to take our mind off of our own problems so we can worry about somebody's problems 3,000 miles away, whether it's taking a drink, whether whatever the case might be, whenever we are trying to escape that discomfort, that oftentimes leads to negative consequences. Whereas if we learn to deal with that discomfort, if we realize that discomfort is part of the human experience, and if we can bring, most importantly, meaning to that discomfort, that when we experience something that's hard, this is a sign that we are getting better at that thing, that growth requires growing pains. And so when we change our mindset to say, look, when I feel uncomfortable, I don't have to escape that discomfort. It's all right to feel stress. It's okay to feel anxiety. These things are normal parts of the human experience. The difference is, when we fetishize this idea that we have to always feel comfortable, that discomfort should be escaped at all times, this is when we look for pills, we look for drink, we look for a scroll on social media, as opposed to learning how to deal with that discomfort. And especially when it comes to in a marriage, you know, these uncomfortable conversations that it takes to, to, to uh, heal a relationship, that's part of the growth process as well. And so I think we all need to become more comfortable with discomfort. Mm. And I keep thinking of a quote from St. Augustine, probably the most cited quote I have other than one from um, Pope Emeritus Benedict, or Pope uh, Benedict the Sixteenth, now deceased. And I think they both relate to this. St. Augustine once said, our souls are restless till they rest in you, O Lord. And it touches on that human condition you're discussing here, that it's our human nature to have this level of dissatisfaction, of discomfort, to be discontent. That so much of what we do is motivated by that in a good sense, um, but also sometimes in a bad sense. And we need to be able to navigate that, which is why I appreciate in your book, you actually walk through the four psychological factors that make satisfaction temporary, helping us to understand why like, okay, all of a sudden I'm happy. Let's say I suddenly got married or I suddenly have this child and I'm happy now, but then I start to get distracted again. Or same with work, you know, I start to get distracted from what's happening What are those four psychological factors and how are they significant for us working through dissatisfaction? Right. So there's all kinds of of ways that the human body and brain are designed to avoid discomfort. Uh, One of the the most important is that uh, we have what's called this hedonic treadmill. And the hedonic treadmill says that when we experience pleasure, when we feel something that uh, is rewarding for us, the brain immediately looks for the next reward. And so this is why we have you know, studies where people win the lottery and they're incredibly happy for a little while. 
And then very, very quickly, they go back to baseline. By the way, this also happens in reverse when terrible things happen to people. For example, we know that when people uh, become paralyzed, they are very depressed for a while, but then again, they go back to baseline. So our brain's ability to constantly reset, I mean, this is, you know, you can, you can think about this historically. If you think about how, when you ask people today, you know, it, it, what's the state of the world today? Most people will tell you, oh, the world's terrible. Things are awful. It's never been worse. But of course, that's ridiculous. Nobody who's opened up a history book can say that with a clear conscience. The world has never been better, uh, right? If you think about the fact that the average person today lives better than any king or queen uh, in mm. times past could ever uh, imagine just the fact that we have indoor plumbing, that we have uh, <laughs> antibiotics, that we have uh, grocery stores, all these things show us that that life is better than ever. And yet this is another principle that we have what's called a negativity bias. And this is definitely mm. something for us to look out for, that the human brain always looks for the bad. And this leads to some very dangerous consequences. It leads to what we call catastrophizing and rumination. And this is where, you know, rumination, the term comes from, uh, from how a, a, a cow chews its cud, right? A, a cow chews and chews and chews and ruminates and ruminates in order to break down its food. And this is what we see people doing all the time because of this combination of, of rumination along with negativity bias, we have more of a tendency to see the bad in the world, whether that's in our relationships, whether that's in the state of the world, uh, as opposed to seeing the wonder, the beauty, the amazing uh, opportunities in the world, our natural human tendency, the way our brain is wired is to see negativity. Now, why would that be? Well, good things are nice, but bad things will kill you. So if you think about, you know, ancient people, they had to worry about the saber-toothed tiger. Uh, that, that had to be the most important thing on, the, on, their, uh, on their attentional radar because that's the kind of thing that would kill them. So mm -hmm. we have this tendency to, to worry about the negative consequences of things more than the positive. And so if you combine that with the fact that we ruminate on these things, we think about, mm -hmm. oh, you know, I should not have said this and why did that person do that? And uh, I wish this was different. That is a pretty lethal combination. So we have to actively fight those things by learning strategies to help us deal with discomfort in a healthy as opposed to hurtful manner. Fantastic. So and you're talking about boredom. Out of boredom, we seek out mm -hmm. other things. You're turning to things that are novel. Our brains are wired to cling to what is no novel, different, wooing, exciting. That negativity bias, right. we just dwell on the negative. You know, you mentioned in your book that we're more apt to remember, even if you had a great childhood, the negative moments rather than the positive stories. You know, it takes more to recall a positive memory than it does to recall that negative thing that happened to you. And rumination, you know, I think mm -hmm. that, you know, we could talk a lot about the male-female side of this, but rumination seems to be something that women do a little bit more to harp on something and stay with it. And I almost, you're kind of just thinking about it, that negativity bias, in some ways, I think men have this stronger capacity to just, like, see that and stick with it. But that's part of, I think, our flight or flight dimension of the human person and kind of the dimension of, you know, uh, being hunter-gatherers for so long that this is a natural part of who we are as human beings. Right. And, and there's all kinds of traits that we've adopted that really don't serve us. Uh, you know, another good example is uh, that, that for ancient people, uh, sweet things were very rare, right? If you were lucky mm -hmm. enough to come across yes. uh, a ripe fruit with a lot of sugar, uh, that, that was very rare. And so, of course, uh, our, our tendency is to consume that right away. Well, in modern society where we have processed sugar uh, always within arm's reach, right? Who can't get to a Coca-Cola or a piece of candy within a few seconds these days? Well, now that's kind of backfired. And so we really have to learn tactics to control our impulses or these ancient traits will, uh, will harm us.
Let's talk about that last, the fourth one. You might have mentioned it if I missed it, but you talk about one of the the last psychological factor that's making satisfaction so temporary where we're seeking something out right away is hedonic adaption. Is Am I saying it correctly? Mm-hmm. Yeah, hedonic adaptation, exactly. Oh, hedonic adaptation. Yeah. So, so that's... Was wrong. <laughs> Right, no problem. Yeah, so, so that's that tendency that as soon as we uh, experience something pleasurable, we retreat back to baseline. You know, just speaking on this, uh, on the topic of food, you know, that, that first bite of ice cream, oh, so good. But maybe the fourth, fifth, or sixth, you know, the, the, the pleasure kind of diminishes. And so it is this kind of this cruel trick that the brain plays on us. Why? To keep us consuming, to keep doing these things that uh, benefited ancient people. But today we have to kind of moderate against that. Now, to, sometimes when I tell people about these these traits that are inherent into the, the into our psychology, they feel hopeless. They think, well, mm-hmm. you know, there's nothing we can do. It's part of our hardwiring, and nothing could be further from the truth. Because right. one of the things that makes our species so amazing is that we are eminently adaptable. We can adapt to all kinds of surfaces. Uh, we you know we can live anywhere on the face of the earth. We can even go out uh, off the planet, right? That's how adaptable our species is. And so there's all kinds of things that you couldn't do when you were born, right? You you couldn't speak, you weren't potty trained, all kinds you, you know, all kinds of things you couldn't do. And of course, we learn. And so this is what I think is the skill of the century is this ability to control our attention, to be able to harness our focus. Because there is no area of your life that isn't impacted by your ability to control your attention, whether it's your professional life, your psychological well-being, your marriage, your health, everything requires your ability to focus. And the price of all the progress that we've had in the world, the fact that you know you can tune into this radio show, the fact that you can watch uh, any video online, the fact that you can you know have, have the world's information at your fingertips, the price of all this progress is that we need to learn how to deal with distraction. Because mm-hmm. if, if you don't decide your own schedule, someone would, will decide it for you. Uh, there's just Absolutely. too many incentives out there for people to rob your time and monetize it, frankly. So mm-hmm. you know the, the news isn't there for your health. <laughs> the news mm-hmm. isn't there uh, to educate you. The news business is there to make money. Right. <laughs> and, and so I, I don't care what, the- what your yeah. preferred, yeah. Yeah, I think that's the kick in the butt that your book gives, though, because I think a lot of us would like to say, well, okay, these apps, these these TV shows, you know, even Netflix, Mm -hmm. the automatic, you know, play for the next show, all of these things are specifically designed to manipulate and hack your brain chemistry so that you go for it. But at the end of the day, you're saying, no, Mm -hmm. we still have a choice and you need to recognize um, that choice and that ability. And I think this fundamentally lines up with what we believe as Catholics, that we have free will and we have the choice. I think that's what's so frightening about human life sometimes is that that person who Mm. just wants to claim, hey, I'm a natural pessimist, what you're saying is, yes, we have a negativity bias, but you have a choice. You can hack your life. And I think that's what's so important in the heart of this is that you don't have to sit and just be okay with that. Mm, I could have said it better myself. I mean, this is really the test. The test is whether we can be better than our human nature. Do we succumb to our primal desires or do we overcome them? And so exactly as you said, when, when I hear someone say, oh, I have a short attention span or, uh, you know, I have an addictive personality or I'm a Sagittarius. Now, look, let asterisk here. Some people really do have medical diagnoses, right? Some people really do have obsessive compulsive disorder. They have an addictive disorder, uh, ADHD. That's about 3% of the population. So there's a 97% chance that is not you. 
<laughs> so for everybody else who doesn't have a medical diagnosis, we need to stop having these limiting beliefs. We, we, we tell ourselves that somehow we're deficient and that we can't without even trying. So what I wanna give people are the tools that we can use right now, maybe we can go into a few of them, that we can use right away to become indistractable. Yes, let's talk about that. And I mentioned two of my favorite quotes earlier, they relate to this. I mentioned St. Augustine, our soul's restless until it rests in him, that we're always looking for what will satisfy us, but it's natural to feel dissatisfied. But Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, deceased, said, the world offers you comfort, you are not made for comfort. You were made for greatness. I think that that has such, always been such an inspiring statement for me. And I think of this in terms of, okay, here's the opportunity to make a change. So what are those changes near that we can make? And by the way, if you're just joining us, Nir Isle is the author of the book, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. I'm posting a link on social media um, to buy the book. You can find it nearandfar.com. That's N-I-R-A-N-D far.com. Post that in the episode note as well. Um, what can we do to make a change moving forward near? Absolutely. So we first need to realize that the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. I'll say that again. The antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. So it doesn't matter what that impulse is, right? Whether it's to uh, eat that chocolate cake if you're on a diet or smoke that cigarette if you're trying to quit or check social media when you really need to do something else. That impulse can always be controlled with forethought. But if you leave it to the last minute, right? If the chocolate cake is on the fork on the way to your mouth, if the cigarette's in your hand, if you're sleeping next to your cell phone, it's too late. You already lost. So the most important principle is to know that there is no distraction we can't fight tomorrow if we don't plan for it today. So that is the most important thing. Plan for those distractions. So let me give you one example. When it comes to fighting these internal triggers, these uncomfortable emotional states, when it comes to boredom, loneliness, fatigue, anxiety, uncertainty, if we can use some of these simple techniques, I'll give you one that I use almost every single day. I've been a professional writer and researcher now for over a decade. I use this every day. When I'm doing my writing, all I want to do is go do something else, right? Writing is really hard work. And of course, you can apply this to your own life for any situation that you find uh, that when you start doing, you're, you're tempted to get distracted. So what do I do? I use what's called the 10-minute rule. And the 10-minute rule says that you can give in to any distraction, but not right now, in 10 minutes. So when I'm writing and, I, and I, what, all I want to do is check email or Google something or look at social media, whatever the case might be, I tell myself, okay, I can't right now, but I can do it in 10 minutes. And now I have a choice to make. I can either get back to the task at hand when I'm ready or do what psychologists call surf the urge. Surfing the urge acknowledges that these internal triggers are like waves. They crest and then they subside. So your job is to surf those urges just like a surfer on a surfboard. Because when we realize that these are transitory feelings, you know, when you are feeling mm -hmm. anxious or lonesome or bored, you think it's going to last forever. But that's never the case. All of these emotions are transitory. So if you can just ride out those sensations, and I repeat to myself a mantra, and this mantra is, this is what it feels like to get better. So I'll literally just close my eyes, take a deep breath, and repeat to myself, this is what it feels like to get better. And so what I'm doing is reminding myself that the discomfort that I'm facing in my professional career, that's part of the process. That's part of growth. That's what it feels like to get better. And wouldn't you know it, when you just wait out those 10 minutes, you'll forget that sensation. That sensation will have subsided and you can get right back to the task at hand. And most importantly, what happens over time is that the 10 minute rule 
becomes the 12 minute rule, becomes the 15 minute rule. And what you're doing is proving to yourself, wait a minute, I can resist. I can wait to give into that distraction or temptation by just delaying a little bit, a little bit. You're building that muscle. You're building that agency and power. I think of it as a redirecting your attention by directing your attention. So that whole idea of naming and claiming something when you're struggling with it. I think of an alcoholic or a drug addict like, okay, mm. this is what I have. Mm. This is my distraction. This is my temptation. I'm naming. I'm claiming it. You mentioned you know, take that deep breath, but now surf the urge by, okay, you know, I can look at that, reconsider this in 10, 12 minutes. You're working on that delay. You're working on self-control in tiny micro moments and minutes that really do give that opportunity to stay focused and overcome what essentially you talk about in your book is pain management. You say time management is that's pain right. management. And that's how you take back your time by working through that desire, that addiction that is pulling you away from what you want to get done. That's right. And, you know, I would say that all of life decisions are pain management decisions, whether it's time management is pain management, weight management is pain management, money management is pain management, because what we are doing essentially as human beings, we are managing our discomfort. The way the brain gets us to act is by spurring this bit of discomfort that we see to alleviate. And so how we alleviate that discomfort is, is paramount, right? Do you, when you feel uh, discomfort, do you try and escape it with distraction? Or do you use it as leverage? And what I found in my study was that that people who are indistractable, if you think about people who are top of their game in, in every field, whether it's business, sports, the arts, what you find is that these people experience the same discomfort as everyone else. They also get bored. They also get lonely. They also get stressed. They also get anxious. But how they deal with that discomfort is different. It's not that they don't feel the discomfort. They use it as rocket fuel to propel them towards traction rather than what many people do is that as soon as they feel the discomfort, they let it guide them towards distraction. You just gave me a weight loss pep talk, by the way. I just had a baby a couple months ago. <laughs> and what you're talking oh, about- Oh, congratulations. Think, thank you. Uh, what you're talking about made me think of even just that challenge, like, okay, maybe your goal is losing weight or whatever it might be. You have to keep your eye on that prize. You have to recognize why am I uncomfortable where I'm at and why do I need to redirect myself in this entire conversation and mindset uh, to actually achieve what I want to achieve because everything is always out there pulling you in the direction of justification. Um, to go with that mm -hmm. distraction from your goal. A question came in that I do want to address yeah. near. Um, Ginny on Instagram asked sure. about avoidance. She talked about in the context of marriage, marital difficulties, when there are conversations maybe you're avoiding, money, tension in the marriage, uh, feelings. And so the question is, what do I do instead of coping with social media? What can I do to decrease social media distraction and confront my discomfort with tough marital conversations? Absolutely. Terrific question. So step number one is mastering these internal triggers or they will become your master. And so we, ha we have to learn these strategies to cope with discomfort in a healthy manner. We talked about one technique. There's over, over a dozen different things you can do in the book. We, we talked about the 10 minute rule. Step number two is making time for traction. So for example, for, did you say that her name was Jenny? Yeah, Jenny. Jenny. So I would say for Jenny, here's, here's a secret that I think a lot of people don't realize. One of the best things you can do if you're trying to uh, use social media more mindfully, as it sounds like she is, I want you to actually schedule time for it. I want you to put time in your calendar for checking Instagram or Facebook or whatever it is you want to do. Put it in your schedule. Why is that so important? There's two reasons here. Number one, you let your brain relax from wondering, when do I get to check? When do I get to check? Right? So you're not doing that all day long. You have time in your schedule. For me, it's 8.30 p.m. That's my social media time. 
And the second reason this is so important is that I can decide how much is appropriate for me based on my values. There's nothing necessarily wrong with these technologies. It's that they don't have a place in our calendar that aligns with our values. So by doing that, now you free your brain from having to worry about when do you get the check and you have as much time built in as is appropriate for you in advance. That's fantastic. Now, how about redirecting toward what needs to be addressed to begin with? Would you recommend, for example, maybe frequently planning time to talk about those different difficult conversations once a week at the end of the day? Absolutely. So we can plan that as well. So we need to plan according to these three life domains, you, your relationships, and finally your work. So when it comes to your relationships, you know, many times we give our loved ones whatever time is left over, the scraps of time at the end of the week. No, no, no plan that time for the important relationships, whether it's a date night, whether it's time to have a, a conversation, put it on your calendar and make sure that time is set aside. Because the fact of the matter is, if we don't plan for it, it won't happen. I'm actually going to address this specific topic in our next segment, uh, talking about dissatisfaction and distraction in marriage. But that's been my guest, Nira Al, today. Nira, thank you so much for joining us. His website is nearandfar.com. You can find his book, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life, we're posting links on social media. 10 out of 10 recommend this book. Lots of homework and things to do to take back your life. We'll be right back talking about dissatisfaction and distraction in marriage. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. Welcome to our weekly marriage hour. I'm happy to take your question if you have one for Catholic perspective. The number is 1-888-914-9149. You can ask your question always on social media. Find me at Timmery, T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. But I love emails. If you want to email me, relevantradio.com forward slash trending, you can catch, uh, write me an email there. Would love to hear from you. Uh, but here's the deal. I want to talk about Chris Rock and what he said about abortion just a little bit. I think a lot of people are discussing this, but not covering the most important points of his comedic conversation, so-called comedic conversation about abortion. Uh, but I want to talk about dissatisfaction and distraction in marriage before we do. It's our weekly marriage hour, and we've been discussing all hour um, with Near Isle, his book, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. And I've been thinking a lot about distraction. Tomorrow we're going to talk about the theology of distraction. So today we had some of the science. We'll talk about the theology of it today uh, and how that discomfort is so normal um, for us as human beings and what it's supposed to mean for us, what it should inspire in us. But before we go there tomorrow, I want to talk about it within marriage. What happens when dissatisfaction and distraction occur in marriage? And what are the solutions? Well, dis dissatisfaction is the core of distraction. And I think that's so important, even when we think about it within marriage, that when people run in different directions other than toward their spouse in marriage, it's because there's some level of dissatisfaction. And I really believe at the heart of this is this myth in life that complete the sentence, I will be happy when. And that myth in life enters into marriage. I will be happy when I get married. I will be happy when I have a child. I will be happy when we can buy a house. I will be happy when we're down to one income and, I, and the wife doesn't have to work. All of these things we can argue go on and on and on about. But that goes intrinsically against what we're called to as people of faith who are called to be in union with God and to live the joy of Christ within us. Joy is not an emotion that's transitory, coming and going. 
Happiness is an emotion that comes and goes. Sorrow, feeling wooed, feeling angry, all of those things are emotions, but joy is living in the grace of God, living by the providence of God, by the mission he has given for us. And that brings us to marriage. Why are we often dissatisfied in marriage? Often, it usually really has to do with us and how we're handling the situation. Often, we're waiting for the other person to give us some type of emotional satisfaction. Waiting for the other person to make me happy. Waiting for the other person, person to make me feel like I've been on an adventure, feeling adventurous. Waiting for the other person to make me feel wooed. Waiting for the other person to make me feel surprised. Now, These things are important and great. We should actually make a great effort to make our spouse feel that way. My husband's brought me flowers two times this week. Uh, I mean, a total surprise and just an absolute joy. I was wooed. I was surprised. It made me happy. Those are great things. But if my husband doesn't bring me flowers for another six months or until next week or whenever that is, that shouldn't mean that... I'm distracted because I'm feeling dissatisfied because the emotional desire I have to feel something isn't quite there. So how can we bring this back to a faith-filled perspective? Well, remembering that we are called to be faithful in our marriages, and that is a part of that covenantal vow we take with one another before God and before our witnesses in holy matrimony, we have to keep our eyes on the prize that marriage, our marriage is meant to be holy, not supposed to be emotionally always exciting and emotionally what we want, emotionally perfect to us, because the reality is, is it won't. I think if anything, marriage promises a lot of an emotional roller coaster. Remembering marriage is that vocation in life that is meant to direct and help us and assist us in going to heaven. And it's a vocation, it's a sacramental vocation that bestows upon us graces to help direct and orient us toward heaven. It's not about emotion. Emotion is important, but it's not the goal. Heaven is. Yeah, even of our marriages. So we have to refocus. And I think that there are some tips we can take from the great tradition of the church and the many wise people who have gone before us. So we were talking about distraction earlier with Near Isle, who wrote the book Indistractable. And we were talking about the importance of kind of naming and claiming things, naming why we are distracted and why we're turning to social media, what that discomfort is that is leading us to be completely distracted from the work, the relationships, those things we need or want to get done. And it's dissatisfaction. What is that dissatisfaction for you? Well, within marriage, we need to be able to acknowledge it and name it. But that doesn't necessarily mean we have to do anything with it. That dissatisfaction might be there. And it might be fixable. It might not. But even if it is fixable, it's not necessarily fixable today, tomorrow, or next year. So naming that dissatisfaction and acknowledging that emotion is so important to helping us and having emotional integrity being virtuous with the emotions we experience. That we don't have to do something always just because we feel a certain way, whether it's angry, sad, happy, any of those things. We don't have to do something about it. But we do need to acknowledge it. I think the second thing to help refocus us when we have dissatisfaction and distraction in marriage is recognizing where those distractions are that we start to turn to. 
So that it's, I think, a a kind of red flag for us to know, hey, I'm not addressing the dissatisfaction I have, so I'm starting to turn to my distractions. That might be spending too much time on social media. That might be trying to just get out of the house all the time, plan as many activities, you know, maybe just for yourself, going camping, going hiking. Um, It could be that you're just diving into work and staying there. It could be that you're obsessed with cleaning or spending too much time with friends rather than in the context of your marriage. It could be that you're reading too much or playing too many video games or watching too much TV. There's so many things that could be that distraction, but you need to know what your distractions are that you turn to so that they can be that red flag for you to say, you know what, there's something that I'm not addressing with regard to my dissatisfaction today. It's a choice. And are you going to allow your life to be ruled by those distractions? We have to, as people of faith, especially within our marriages, we have to step forward, stand up, speak up, engage, not be afraid to tackle what's happening. And I keep thinking of the great tradition of our Catholic Church, the use of symbols. Symbols are so important for us as people of faith. They're actually a core part of our faith. There's been a lot of controversy over the eras about this specific thing. Century after century, this concern over religious icons. But religious icons are at the core of our Catholic tradition. They're reminders of what is most important. Models for how to stay focused on God. We have the crucifix, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ that can be depicted on these crucifixes, his bloody passion, his suffering, the inspiring call, the death his life uh, brought to us. We have, for example, icons of saints who should inspire us to live as they lived, recalling their stories, their life, their sacrifices, what they did, how they prayed, and how much they loved the Lord. We have even things such as holy water, efficacious in grace as a sacramental, but also a symbol to remind us of something. These symbols are a powerful part of our faith, but they can also be used within the context of our marriage. For example, I've shared before that we used a Bosnian tradition from the Catholic uh, from the Catholics in Bosnia where they marry on a crucifix. My husband and I, when we got married, we bought a very special crucifix. And when we exchanged our vows, we exchanged our vows on the crucifix. Our hands entwined on the crucifix, wrapped in the priest's stole with the priest's hands over the top of our hands. And part of what the priest said before we exchanged our vows is that we have found our cross in one another and we're called to embrace it and live it out and that before we go seeking any type of um, way out of the marriage or even external um, help to be brought into the marriage that we turn to the cross first and foremost that we're married on that crucifix that sacrificial love is at the core so that crucifix always is in a central part of our home to look at and that's what it reminds me of christ's example of sacrificial love and that great call that i fail so miserably at but I'm still called to. So that's one example how the crucifix can be a huge symbol for for us in our marriages. That life-giving, self-giving love. And love meets its pinnacle and perfection in Christ. And if you look at the pinnacle of Christ's life, it was on the cross and he was bloody, bruised, and crucified. If that's an example for marriage, we feel often bloody, bruised, and crucified. Or sometimes we need to allow ourselves to be bloody, bruised, and crucified in the midst of our wrong desires, our focus on our own emotions. 
Symbols can also be used within our home by turning to saints who were married, getting to know their stories, bringing one of those icons into our house, on a desk, on a mantle, in the kitchen. I think of St. Joseph, his strength as a husband, his obedience to the mission of God, his turning toward God to guide him. Even when angels, angels appeared to him in dreams and St. Joseph had the humility to follow what God was sending to him through his messenger, the angel, in order to know how to lead his family. Talk about humility. Our Lady and her fidelity, her beautiful love for St. Joseph, her love for that child Jesus. Saints Louis and Zelie Martin, the parents of St. Therese of Lisieux, were married. They're saints, canonized saints. Do we know their stories? Have we read some of their letters they exchanged with one another? I think of St. Rita, who was a widowed mother who became a nun. Do we know her story and her suffering and how she lived out her vocation? St. Sophia, who, again, was a widowed mother with three female daughters, three girls who ended up being martyred martyred before her. King St. Louis, who we actually have letters he wrote to his son. St. Stephen of Hungary, same thing. We have letters that he wrote to his son. And there are these examples of saints who are symbols that should drive us to be inspired to live out our faith. So what have we talked about in terms of redirecting our focus in marriage when we experience dissatisfaction and distraction. Naming that dissatisfaction. We don't necessarily have to do anything about it. Acknowledging what those distractions are that we turn to and knowing those are red flags for needing to address the dissatisfaction. So we're utilizing symbols within our home, using the stories of the saints and Christ as inspiration to live out our marital vows. Number four would be reconnecting. You know, a lot of people have talked, wise people have talked about the importance of reconnecting daily, weekly, and then throughout the year in your marriage. Daily check-ins, um, Jim O'Day and I from Integrity Restored, last, a couple of years ago actually, uh, did a podcast talking about highs and lows and how this is one way to connect with your spouse every day. Go for a walk and uh, do this challenge where for 30 days you share the high point and the low point with your spouse of your day. And this is one way to check in. It just takes a couple minutes and it's pure listening. You're not trying to solve or do anything with what the other person says. Uh, Father Rocky in his book, Marriage Insurance, says make sure you go to bed together because that's when you talk. Everything may happen during the day, the family, the kids, all of that. If you go to bed together, it gives you that opportunity to talk to one another. Everyone, including in Father Rocky's book, Marriage Insurance, recommends a weekly date night. Hey, we've had to get creative. We can't necessarily leave home, but tonight's our date night. We're not going somewhere, but our big thing is if we don't go out, we have to light a fire in the fireplace, turn off the lights, and sit and talk while we enjoy the fire. It's something I love, but it's a neat, simple way to still make that happen if you can't afford to go out. You can play a board game, so many things. And finally, that fifth thing I'd recommend is renewal. Couples retreats, listening to a religious talk about marriage and challenges within marriage, listening to this show, maybe even with your spouse when we talk about uh, things that should inspire or challenge our marriages, having discussions about these ideas of where we want to be in our marriages, praying together, doing a Bible study together, just reading the Bible. It doesn't have to be some fancy form, praying the rosary together. Even renewal through going to therapy. Things may not be terrible, but maybe there are some things you can work on together and you can use that little extra oomph to renew that marital vow and that commitment and look at those challenges that are getting in the way of that relationship. 
And even planning that vacation away, a lot of people recommend still getting away for that vacation. Maybe a weekend, just the two of you. There's so many fruits to this, but we're going to continue to talk about distraction tomorrow on Trending, talking about the theology of distraction. And coming up, we'll talk about Chris Rock, the comedian, what he said about abortion and how we can use that to talk to others about abortion too. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. How can you know what abortion is and still support it? I think that's the clincher of our culture today. Chris Rock, I'm sure you know him, is an award-winning comedian. There was lots of drama with him last year and Will Smith. Um, compared to, he compared abortion to hiring a hitman. A lot of people are talking about that. He did this during his new Netflix special, but there's a lot more that Chris Rock says in his comedy piece about abortion. Now, abortion is never comedy, but what he said is intriguing. He claims he's pro-abortion. Do you believe him? Do you not? Is he making a joke about being pro-abortion? Or is he making a joke about being pro-life? He actually starts by saying that he's pro-life. So listen to this and I'll comment and share some thoughts because I think this is a real tool, this conversation. It just came out this week, March 4th, uh, specifically talking about abortion on Netflix. And if there's someone you want to talk to about abortion and you haven't had the opportunity to revisit the conversation or ever visit it, this is your opportunity. So listen and then I'll dissect it. In most of the country, abortion is illegal. A lot of people say, Chris, you shouldn't talk about abortion. It's a woman's issue. And I'm like, hey, I've paid for more abortions than any woman in this room. Not a joke. That's Chris. And when I go to the clinic, I say, give me the usual. (laughs) When I go in there, they give me a punch card. Here you go. This is disgusting. But listen, listen, this is Chris Rock, comedian. Mango. Stupid. That's right. Pro-life, pro-choice. Pro-life, pro-choice. What are you? What are you? I have two beautiful daughters. I have two beautiful daughters, right? And so there's a part of me that's pro-life, okay? Because I'm definitely pro their lives, okay? So there's a part of me that's pro-life. But since I love my daughters unconditionally, I love them not just as little girls, I love them as grown women. I want my daughters to live in a world where they have complete control of their bodies, okay? Okay? And because of that, I am pro-choice. I'm absolutely pro-choice, okay? I believe women should have the right to kill babies. That's right, I'm on your side. I believe you should have the right to kill as many babies as you want. (laughs) But let's not get it twisted, it is killing a baby. Because whenever I pay for an abortion, I request a dead baby. Sometimes I call up the doctor like a hitman. Is it done? And people argue, first trimester, second trimester, first trimester, second trimester. I think women 
should have the right to kill a baby until he's four years old. <laughs> Chris Rock here, comedian. I think you should moment. be able to kill a baby till you get that first report card. <laughs> he ain't never getting a scholarship. Okay, you can finish watching Stranger Things. But when it's over, we going to the clinic. <laughs> Hurry up, I'm trying to get a smoothie. Okay, that's Chris Rock, the award-winning comedian. He has his selective outrage um, on his a special on Netflix. March 4th, he came out with this whole abortion dialogue. There's a lot to be said here, but I think this is a piece that you can use to talk to someone you know and love about abortion. Hey, did you hear Chris Rock did a piece on abortion? He says he's pro-abortion, but he also said there's a part of him that's pro-life. Did you hear what he said? Okay, so here's what he said. He starts off with, um, I kind of dive into the middle of this. I think this is something every pro-abortion person actually thinks. He said, there's a part of me that's pro-life. I think every pro-abortion person thinks this. But Every pro-abortion has their exceptions. And for him, he claims his exceptions are his daughters. But he said, there's a part of me that's pro-life. And he says, because he has daughters. He said, so I'm pro their lives. He basically just addressed the topic that those children who are wanted are allowed to live. And those children who are unwanted are not allowed to live. What do you make of that? Ask that question. You just throw threw out there a really key argument. You don't have to answer it. You can just listen to it, what Chris Rock said, and then talk about it. But then he goes on to say, whenever I pay for an abortion, I request a dead baby. He just hit on a precise truth. Now, comedy always, often addresses, usually should, a good comedy, a truth. There's usually truth to what is funny. Now, I'm not saying abortion is funny, but I'm using this skit he did on abortion to discuss how we can use it to talk to someone else. He says, I'm absolutely pro-choice because I want my daughters to live in a world where they have complete control of their bodies. Okay, I think he's actually mocking this argument in a certain respect. Because I think, and again, he might be serious, he might be kidding. That's what we don't know. Is he really pro-life? Is he really pro-abortion? He's showing both sides of it. But I think he's showing a lot of the pro-abortion argument and knocking it on its head. Because is the truth of the matter is, is that a baby's not a woman's body. If it was, she would have four ears and four legs and would even have a different blood type, which she doesn't. A baby has a different blood type. It would have two hearts, two heartbeats. In fact, the baby could be male or female, so apparently people can be confused about their gender. Because if you think that the body inside your womb, when you're pregnant, uh, is yours, then you could actually have two biological sexes and the chromosomes at the time. But it's not the case. They're two separate human beings. And even the proof of scientific capabilities we have, medical capabilities for in utero surgeries to treat the baby completely separate of the mother, um, it's phenomenal. He says, I think women should have the right to kill a baby until he's four years old. I think you should be able to kill a baby until you get that first report card. Is he joking or is he serious? I'm guessing he's joking. But this is what he's pointing to, how extreme abortion is either way. You either believe in it or you don't. And I think that's what Chris Rock is saying. But at least claim it for what it is. And that's what he's saying as well. He's highlighting in a certain respect, there's no difference between killing a 13-week baby gestation and a four-year-old. A dead baby is a dead baby. And he points this out. But 
This is the thing. He's pointing out we know what abortion is. So he's hitting on a key question right now we need to be asking ourselves as a culture. We should be asking our friends, how can you know what abortion is and still support it? We no longer live in a culture that believes a baby in the womb is a clump of cells. Biology and science have proven that wrong. Science is on our side. The pro-abortion argument is a losing argument from its inception. Abortion hurts women and it kills babies. That is scientifically proven, psychologically made clear. There are in utero surgeries that are transformative and healing for babies. There's ultrasound technology out there. There's psychologists who are secular and pro-abortion who have to counsel and help women to heal from the loss of what? A lost baby when they had an abortion. Chris Rock called abortion for what it is. He's made this a point of conversation for you with people who you want to talk to about it. Comedy has a way of telling the truth. Maybe he's making a joke about being pro-life. Maybe he's making a joke about being pro-abortion. But a man who sees abortion for what it is, and he does here, is clearly showing it's killing a baby. He's giving the example of finding common ground. Can we agree that abortion, what abortion is itself? And then can we go from there about debating whether or not we agree with it? Can we move forward discussing whether or not we want to choose a woman's so-called right to choose for her own body? Is it her body? And if abortion is necessary for women to thrive, what, where's the line that we draw? These are questions we should be able to ask and converse on. This is Tim Ray from Trending with Tim Ray. Friday, I'm going to be joined by a medical doctor who's going to share his input on the pro-abortion culture and the medical community and how we can understand this influence to promote abortion so that we can prevent abortion from occurring in our culture. We're also going to talk about the theology of distraction. I don't know about you, but I get distracted all the time, whether it be in marriage, in work. How do we see this from a theological perspective? Join me daily, 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio.